Well, three weeks from today, we will be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We will be celebrating Easter. As we work our way towards Easter in the next few weeks, I'm going to be sharing some uh, messages that are kind of the last few weeks of Jesus' ministry. This week, we're going to be looking in primarily the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus has taken his disciples to kind of a unique place called Caesarea Philippi. It's also found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, and it's also found in Luke chapter 9. To get the fullness of today's message, it's great to read all three of these guys' perspectives, what they wrote down. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus as he's traveling towards Jerusalem. It's a long trip by foot, and Jesus and the disciples do a lot of ministry along the way, so we're going to be looking at that next week. Then week three, we're going to be looking at what we call in the church Palm Sunday, the last week of Jesus' life, oftentimes referred to as Passion Week. We will be looking at some of the events that took place in that last week, including the triumphal entry into Jerusalem when Jesus rode the colt of a donkey and was welcomed with cheers, palm branches. And then on Good Friday, I'm going to share a message that I've shared the last few years that's become one of the most impactful messages in my own life, and that's on the cup that Jesus prayed about when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane in such agony that he was sweating drops of blood. He prayed, Father, if it be possible that you would remove this cup from me, what is that cup? And that's what we're going to be looking at on Good Friday. And then, of course, on Easter, we will try as best we can to experience the resurrection along with the disciples when Jesus was back to life and seen by so many witnesses. But today, if you have your Bibles, I hope you have them open to Matthew. Look at chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 13 through 28 this morning. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. What we're going to be looking at is where Jesus is at and why he's there. Jesus is going to be taking the disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. They have been recently ministering around the Sea of Galilee. They've been doing amazing things. Jesus has been doing amazing things. They went from one side of the sea to the other and back again. They fed the 5,000 at one time. They fed the 4,000 at another time. And if you read the scriptures, is that 4,000 men, that's not even including the women and children that would have been there. And he fed them all with a few loaves of bread and a few small fish. And then there's a little village just north of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Bethsaida. And in Bethsaida, he does a miracle that most of us have maybe heard about. It's kind of interesting because of the way he did it. There was a blind man who came to Jesus to be healed. He wanted his sight back. And what does Jesus do? He spits in his eyes and lays hands on him. And he regains his sight. And from this point, Jesus takes his disciples further north. Very interesting and unique that he takes them to Caesarea Philippi or the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's somewhere around 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. He is taking the disciples away from the crowds. He's taking them away from the cities. He's taking them more out into a wilderness area. 
Jesus is doing this, I believe, for primarily one reason. To prepare the disciples for what's about to come. The disciples have been with Jesus for the better part of three years. Following Him, they've forsaken post everything to follow Jesus. They've trusted Jesus. They believed in Jesus and they have loved Jesus. And Jesus knows that what's coming is going to shatter their world. And he wants to pray for them, pray with them, and teach them. Jesus knew that he was about to be delivered into the hands of his enemies, go through a mock trial. They knew, he knew he was going to be beaten and abused and eventually hung on a cross. And I believe he was doing all that he could to prepare the disciples for what was coming. He knew the uncertainty. He knew the fears that the disciples were going to be experiencing. The one they've loved, been with, followed. The one they'd seen do so many amazing miracles, and yet he was going to be arrested, beaten, and killed on a cross. He knew also the persecution and the hatred that these disciples were going to experience themselves as they begin to carry out the mission that Jesus is going to assign them to take the good news of the gospel to the whole world. He knew that these days that the disciples were going to be facing was going to be filled with questions, anxiety, and fear. They were humans, after all, just like you and me. And he knew that these would be troubling times for them. He knew that this was going to be the time in just a few short weeks that they were going to see the agony that Jesus was going to have to go through. And I believe he felt it was time to tell them very clearly what was coming, to try to prepare them for what was ahead. Trying to build their faith for these difficult days. We're going to be looking primarily in Matthew, as I said, but I want to start with one verse out of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9, verse 18. It's a very short verse. It kind of sets the stage for what the story picks up in the Gospel of Matthew. In Luke it says, in verse 18, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And that's where we pick it up in Matthew Chapter 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Luke said he prayed, he went away privately to pray. And then he asked the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the people say that the Son of God is? What are they talking about? Well, first of all, it catches my attention that Jesus goes away to pray, privately. And there's this part of me that asks silly questions sometimes, but when I read that, I wonder, what what would he go to pray about? What's on his heart at this particular time? He's been ministering to the crowds around the Sea of Galilee for quite some time. And now he's going up into this wilderness area with his disciples to teach him. Part of me thinks that he may have been praying for his disciples. Knowing what was coming, knowing the frailty of humans, maybe he was praying for them 
that their hearts and minds would be opened, that they could understand that their faith would be increased. Or maybe he was praying for himself. Maybe he was praying for, for the strength to walk the path that was laid out before him for our salvation. Or maybe, and probably most likely, he just wanted to talk to his father. He just wanted to spend time with the father. The father who is in heaven in all his glory. The place where Jesus had to leave to come to earth for us. He probably just wanted to spend time with his father. Who do the people say that I am? Who does the Son of Man say that I am? How many of you think that Jesus didn't know what the people were saying? Of course he did. He heard them. He'd experienced them. He knew what they were saying about him. But he asked this question, and I believe he asked this question to the disciples. Really, he's just setting up the next question. Because I believe what he's wanting to do is have the disciples express their faith. So when he says, who do the people say that I am? The first thing, really, that the disciples do is they acknowledge that the people did not get it, that he was the Messiah. So when Jesus asks this question, we see the answers. In verse 14, it says, They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others say Jeremiah. Or maybe you're one of these, one of the other prophets. Some people called him teacher and some people called him rabbi. But notice what they don't call him. They don't call him the Messiah. Some saw the miracles that Jesus did with their own eyes and in their excitement declared him to be the son of David. The multitudes that he fed near the Sea of Galilee by Bethsaida They were so excited by the miracle that they wanted to make him king of Israel. Some said that he was John the Baptist, come back to life. Some said he was Elijah, come back to life. Some said he was Jeremiah or another prophet, come back to life. But none of them, no one, was declaring him to be the Messiah. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't recognize the truth. Jesus didn't meet the expectations of the people. Again, there's part of me that can help but go to today when there seems to be the same problem in the world around us. Some people will acknowledge that Jesus existed, that he was a teacher, maybe a good man, maybe he was a predictor of the future. They put him in a category with Nostradamus or something like that. Some people say he didn't exist at all. It's just a story written in a book by a bunch of men. But they don't believe that he's the Messiah. They don't trust in him. The message is the same. And sadly, the response is oftentimes the same as it was back then. So Jesus then asked them the question that I really believe he wanted to ask. In verse 15, he says, 
But what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter right away speaks up. And I believe he's speaking up for all of the group. But as Peter usually was, he was more exuberant than the rest. And he speaks up immediately and declares. And he declares this clearly. And when you study the way that it's written and the words that are used, it's an emphatic declaration. Emphatic. Each word is if it was carefully chosen and enunciated and stressed to the utmost. He declares to them, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. The Messiah, the Christ. The Son. His divinity of the living God. The only living God. Peter declares this, and I believe that his disciples believe this. All of the disciples believe this. This was their faith. But even in the midst of that declaration of their faith, they didn't understand. They didn't really get it. They didn't comprehend what kind of Messiah he was. They believed he was the Messiah, but they didn't understand what kind. They didn't understand what he was going to have to go through to become the Messiah, the Savior. And they didn't understand yet how the, the rule of the Messiah was going to look. The Messiah wasn't going to come as a conquering hero riding a white horse. He wasn't going to lead a large, large army of followers and believers. This is not who he was. This was not God's plan. And that's not the kind of Messiah he was. He was a Messiah who was going to come first as a suffering servant. He was a Messiah whose mission was take on himself the sins of the world. He was a Messiah that was going to have to die on a cross, be crucified. And he was a Messiah to rule and reign who was going to be raised from the dead, resurrected, on the third day. And I believe that's why some of what follows, Jesus spoke. He first says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by Father in heaven. It has nothing to do with the carnality of man. What he's speaking here in this verse is an absolute truth. That this truth about him being the Messiah, Jesus being the Messiah, being the Son of the living God, could only be revealed by the Holy Spirit working in the heart of man. So he is saying to Peter and to the disciples, this has not been revealed to you because of what I've done. It's not been revealed to you by the miracles you've seen. It's not even been revealed to you by my teaching. It has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. And it's the same for us today. This kind of revelation comes to us, to man, to mankind, by the Holy Spirit. Working in our hearts. Opening our minds. Opening our understanding. And giving a grace to each one of us to receive this truth that He is the Messiah, He is the Savior, He is the Christ, He is the Son of the living God. Jesus is already sharing with them 
insight into what the Holy Spirit is going to be doing in the lives of all of us. Not even all the miracles Jesus performed in front of the eyes of all these many, many thousands of people that saw him do these amazing things. Jesus is saying none of that, none of that led to the salvation of anyone, even though they saw it with their own eyes. None of them brings truth to light in their hearts. None of those things. The Holy Spirit is the only thing as the Holy Spirit moves on our lives and we accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, it is the only thing that removes the darkness of sin from human beings. It's only through the Holy Spirit helping us to understand the significance of Jesus coming as a human, being all God, all man, the incarnation. Jesus going to the cross and paying the price for our sins, the crucifixion. And only through the Holy Spirit, quickening in our spirit, the significance of the resurrection. It's only by the Holy Spirit that these truths can become real in our lives. In Matthew 16, verse 18, after Peter has given this response, Jesus replies to Peter and he says, I tell you that you are Peter. He changes his name from Simon to Peter. And because Peter or Petra means rock, a lot of people, I believe, are very confused by the rest of the verse. It says that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it. What is the rock? I want to offer to you the rock is not Peter. The rock is no man, no human being. The significance or the whole point of this whole section of Scripture is the answer to the question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And that being the significant part of the subject matter of this section of Scripture clearly should tell us that the rock is the message that Peter shared. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's upon that rock, that message, that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Nothing can overcome his church. Jesus is the foundation. The message is the foundation of the church. The church built on this foundation. And it's interesting that many different places in the scripture we see references to Jesus himself as the rock or the stone. He is called the cornerstone of the church. He is called the living rock, the living stone. He is called the rock of our salvation. Jesus, the message of Jesus. Jesus, the word that became flesh. The word that we have. The truth that we have. This is the foundation of the church that it must be built upon. That it withstands whatever attacks Satan would rise up against it. This was true from the very beginning of the church. If you remember on the day of Pentecost, there were just the 12 and a few other believers. Talks about the 120. We don't know for sure how many there were. But it was true that the gates of hell could not stand against it. Whatever persecution arose would not stand. And this is true still today. Throughout the history of mankind, there has been groups of people. There's been teachers and philosophers. Satan has risen up 
or raised up so many things to come against the church, come against this foundational truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of the living God. And if that foundation is not present, that church will fall. That church will crumble. It will not withstand the enemy. But built on that, that, those words, those truths, that foundational stone, it will thrive and survive as it has for 2,000 years. Jesus goes on and says in the next couple of verses something that there's been many, many different messages on, many different points of view on. He, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's been so many messages on binding and loosing that I'm not even going to really focus on that. What I want to focus on is I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He is talking directly to Peter, as best we can tell, because Peter is the one that answered. But I do not believe the keys of the kingdom have only been given to Peter. The keys to the kingdom, what are they? The Word of God. The message that Peter just declared when Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? The gospel message is the key to the kingdom of God. In Adam Clark's commentary, there's an interesting fact that's brought out from a historian and theologian whose name is Martin. He writes these words. When the Jews made a man a doctor of the law, so back in biblical times, they would go through their biblical training, their Jewish training, and when they were ready to be made a doctor of the law, here's what it says they would do. They put into his hand the key of the closet in the temple where the sacred books were kept and also tablets to write on, signifying by this that they gave him authority to teach and to explain the scriptures to the people. A key was given and put in his hands. Really, it's as if Jesus himself is telling Peter and the disciples, and really he's telling you and me, there's a key that he's given to all of us. I believe it's the gospel message. It's the word of God. Peter, specifically, had the amazing privilege of presenting this key and opening the door to the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost. As you recall, when the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost, the people accused him of being drunk. And Peter starts out and he steps up and he starts preaching under the unction and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he starts preaching and teaching all that Jesus had done and the salvation message, the gospel message. He had the great privilege of taking the key that God had given him, the key to the kingdom, and opening that to the Jewish people. All who would believe gained entrance into the kingdom of God. And Peter not only had the great privilege of opening that door to the Jewish people, he also had the great privilege of opening the door to the kingdom of God to the Gentile nations. When Peter was called because of some visions to go to the house of Cornelius, a centurion who gathered together, it says, his friends and his family, and they called for Peter and Peter came. 
and Peter shared the good news of the gospel message. He opened the entrance into the kingdom of heaven to the Gentile people. What an amazing privilege Peter had. But we, each one of us, each one of us as believers, each one of us whose God has extended His grace to us to accept the gift of salvation, He has placed in our hands the same key, the gospel message, the Word of God, that we are to share with others, that God would be able to use us and would use us to increase His kingdom here on earth by sharing this message that's the foundation of the church. The gospel message. And then something really, at first look, seems strange. Jesus says, keep silent. Don't tell anybody about this. In verse 20, he warns his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Why would he say something like that? Why would he tell them that? And this isn't the only place we've heard Jesus say this throughout his out his ministry. He would teach something, do something, revealing something to the disciples, but he said, don't tell anybody. He would do a miracle and he'd tell that person, don't go tell anybody. I believe in this case, where he says to his disciples, when you look at what's taking place, he's taking them apart from the culture of the community, the population, and taking them into the wilderness and he's teaching them, opening up their eyes to a certain degree, and he says, don't tell anybody. I believe it's because the people wouldn't understand. The disciples still did not understand the full meaning of what it meant, Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It wasn't until His crucifixion, it wasn't until His resurrection that they fully understood what the Scriptures had said, what His teaching really meant. I believe Jesus said, don't tell anybody, They aren't going to understand anyway. Amongst what other reasons he might have had. And in verse 21 it goes on and it says, From this time on Jesus began to to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And on the third day he would rise again from the dead. Try to put yourself in the place of the disciples. Whatever Jesus has been teaching them, this had to be like a shocker to their system. Jesus is telling them very clearly, they're going to go to Jerusalem and they're not going to be received well by the religious leaders, the teachers. Eventually they're going to kill him. I'm not sure if they even heard him say on the third day I'll be raised from the dead. They would have been in such shock. From Peter's reaction alone, we can see Peter couldn't stand even hearing these words. Peter jumps up and what's he do? But he, The scripture says he rebukes the Lord. However bold Peter's been in the past, he's unbelievably bold now. He rebukes the Lord by saying to him, Lord, God forbid this will not happen to you. How could we have reacted? How would we have reacted? I don't know. 
But I can relate to Peter's shock. And without thinking his response. And then what's said next, we've heard many times, and I think a lot of people point their finger at Peter. But we need to understand how Satan works. Satan works oftentimes, probably most of the time, through people. When Peter says these words in Matthew 16, verse 23, Jesus responds and he says, Get behind me, Satan! And it says, he says this to Peter. It's as if he's looking at Peter, directly at Peter, but he says, Get behind thee, Satan! You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I don't know how Peter responded, but I want to suggest to us, Jesus was not talking to Peter. He was speaking directly to Satan, who was speaking through Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Your plans are not going to work. You're not going to separate Peter from me, his Redeemer. You're not going to separate anybody. You're not going to change what's going to happen. Get behind me, Satan. Powerful section of Scripture. Powerful, important teaching for the disciples. For the days that were coming. Jesus' teaching didn't stop right there in this area of Caesarea Philippi. If you look further in your scriptures, you'll see Jesus spends some time teaching them about the real cost of discipleship. Kind of difficult things to hear for human beings. It's the denying of self. Crucifying the flesh. Picking up your cross daily and crucifying the flesh. And following Jesus. Every day, take up your cross. For six days, the Scripture tells us, he spent up there with the disciples. Six days. Luke says eight. I don't believe there's a contradiction because I don't believe there are any in the Scripture. I believe he counted the first day when it happened and he counted the day that it left. But the six days in between, Jesus taught them. And then they start the journey. Back first to Bethsaida, to the Sea of Galilee. Then it says they went to the other side of the Jordan and they're headed to Jerusalem by way of Jericho. Before they left, Peter and John and James had an amazing experience. We call it the transfiguration. Jesus had taken them to the top of a mountain. And they all saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah before they left the mountain. I believe Jesus knew difficult times were coming. He obviously knew difficult times were coming. And he took the disciples aside to spend time with him. I don't want us to miss the significance of that. Difficult times are here around the world and in our nation. Difficult times are here now. The best solution is the same as it was for those disciples in Caesarea Philippi. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with your family in the Scriptures, studying, 
meditating, praying, seek Jesus, develop a greater intimacy with Him during the difficult times to prepare us for what's coming. We don't know what's coming. But it's going to present challenges. We need to be challenged with the same question that the disciples were challenged with by Jesus. He said, who do you say that I am? Who does Mike say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Do you believe in your heart what you say when you answer that question? Who do you say that I am? How we answer that question will determine how we get through these difficult times. It will determine how we get through every day, no matter what times we're living in. Who do you say that I am? It's a reminder. It should cause each one of us, as we think about that, meditate on that question and our answer to that question, to to be reminded of who Jesus is and who He was and will be forever that He is our Lord and Savior, that He paid a price on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be restored to an intimacy with God Himself. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of the promises that exist in the Word of God for all of us as His sons and daughters. You're His children. I'm His child. His promises are for us and He promises hope. We have an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. He promises peace, a peace that passes all natural understanding in the midst of the storm. Church, we need to live in the eye of the hurricane, not in the chaos of the winds that surround us. And we can only do that when our relationship with Jesus is what it should be. He promises peace. He promises hope. He promises for each one of us protection and provision. He promises, I will provide all that you need. He promises that He will draw us under His wings and protect us from what's coming. I don't even know what that really looks like. But His Word of God is true. And all of these things that we're reminded of should really remind us that it all comes out of His very character. That He is love. He doesn't just love. God is love. And He loves you and He loves me. He has a plan and purpose for each one of our lives, whatever that may be. And He has a plan and purpose for the lives of all those around us who may not even know Jesus as their Lord and Savior yet. And He's given us the keys, the good news of the Gospel, to do our part in the role of the Holy Spirit drawing people to Christ. We need to spend time alone with Jesus just like the disciples did. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote so many amazing things. In 1 Corinthians, writing to the church at Corinth, he writes these words in chapter 14. He says, I'm going to pray in the Spirit, I'm going to pray in my understanding. He says, I'm going to sing in the Spirit, and I'm going to sing in my own understanding. And he wants, I want to close with the words he wrote to the church in Philippi that I shared this week. In Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but everything, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. What better instruction from Paul directly from the Lord's heart? As the worship team comes forward, we're going to be putting the text number up on the screen also for those that want to text in their giving. But I want to pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you love us, that you have a plan for us, that you have a destiny and a future for us, and it's a good plan. I praise you, God, that your promises are true, that we can live in peace and have a hope no matter what the world around us looks like. God, I pray that you would raise up in each one of us hearts of rejoicing, hearts of thanksgiving, even in the midst of the chaos. That we would keep our eyes on you and not our circumstances. God, there is such blessing for your children in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would manifest your presence in each one of our lives in powerful, fresh, new ways. That we would know we're not alone. We believe by faith what your word says, that you'll never leave nor forsake. We rejoice in that. God, we pray in your mercy, your grace and power that you would stop this disease, this virus from spreading. We take very seriously what's going on in the world around us. And we know that things come on the just and the unjust alike. We pray your protection over your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.